Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today uh, joined by very special guests, Christoph, Pavel, Louis, and Ricardo, the partners at Point9 Capital. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Christoph, you've uh, you've previously been on the podcast, so I'll I'll let you start. Why don't you begin by uh, introducing the background of how Point9 got started and then let's get into uh, its evolution and feel free to introduce your partners in, in the process. Yeah, sure. Maybe why um, why don't we start like with like a really brief introduction sure. of Pavel and my, myself, and then because that uh, I think kind of uh, explains like the the foundation of uh, of point nine and and what we're doing here together. But again, first of all, thanks again, Eric, for for having all four of us on your show today. So by by quick background, I've been in, in tech pretty much for as long as I can remember. I, I started a software mail order business back in the days when software was sold by sending around floppy disks um, through the mail. Um, I founded my first internet startup in 1997, had a decent exit and started another consumer internet startup a few years later. And after that second exit, it it wasn't quite clear to me um, what was next. So I was browsing the, the web for interesting startups, ideas, um, inspiration. And um, one website that caught my attention showed a very large smiling Buddha on the website. You can, um, this is one of these early roll-up displays where you can see the, the Buddha with the headphones. <laughs> um, and that, that caught my attention. I gave a trial to the trial the product. It looked it looked cool. Um, reached out to the founders, and that became my my first SaaS angel investment. That's awesome. How yeah, about you? Uh, so I'm Pavel. Like we started Point Nine together like ten years ago or so. And my personal journey with startups started around 2008 when I made my first angel investments and helped start a startup studio in Berlin called Team Europe. Uh, and as part of Team Europe, uh, I was involved in the earliest days of starting of over 10 or so internet startups, most notably Delivery Hero, which is uh, kind of a European Grubhubby style website, which is a public company today, valued at over $20 billion. And uh, we're doing this and we're also seed investing. And while doing the seed investing, uh, I met Christoph and and I think the story behind this was that Christoph was looking for co-investors for a Canadian SaaS company that, that he was trying to invest into. And, and, and he reached out to a bunch of people that he knew uh, that were doing seed investing back in the days in Europe. Uh, and one of them was Lukas, my partner at Team Europe. He put us in touch and we did the deals together. And the deal or the investment worked out quite well. The company has been very successful as a market leader in its segment raised hundreds of millions of dollars and I think everybody involved is happy. We have a great relationship with the founders, Jack and Ryan. This experience of investing together uh, made us get to know each other better. And uh, in the 
two years after the Clio investment, we made, I think, 17 or so co-investments in various startups. And uh, after two years of doing that, we thought, let's, let's have something more kind of formal, like a platform uh, to give it, uh, to give it a, a nice framework. And, and that's how we created Point9 in, in 2011 and set off to, to raise, uh, to raise uh, a, a, a VC fund, uh, which we did. And the idea was to have some more money to kind of be more meaningful for the startups we were backing, uh, but stick to the seed stage, stick to SaaS and marketplaces, be involved early in the formational days of companies. And I think importantly, we thought that great companies can come from anywhere. So we wanted to be able to invest globally and you could only do that remotely. So we've been heavily leaning on, on remote technologies back then Skype to, to do what we wanted to do. And, you know, fast forward 10 years and, we're here. We have invested in over 100 companies in almost 30 countries. Have you know two public decacorns, uh, uh, unicorn with Revolut, and a lot of other great companies coming from from many various places like Clio out of Canada, Algolia out of Paris, Mambu and Contentful out of Berlin, and Dog Planner or Brainly out of Poland. We also been active in the US. Most recently with with Loom and and Next Health, maybe you might have heard of them. So we've been very fortunate to be involved in those great companies all around the world. So it gives us confidence to to continue on that path. Totally. And and how have you guys thought about uh, evolving and expanding your firm? Because there's a lot of different directions that you could have gone in. Uh, how have you thought uh, about that? We've recently raised um, a new fund, but. There is not the fund is like slightly bigger than the funds that we raised previously, but um, intentionally the increase is is quite modest um, because we really want to stay focused on what we've been doing in the last ten to twelve years, which is being the best investor we can be at the at the earliest stage, and and uh, so we really want to continue to focus on 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 seed investing. We'll, we'll also continue to be focused on B2B SaaS and B2B marketplaces and happy to uh, go into some more detail on, on that. Um, you could say that well, it's, as, as one of our LPs likes to put it, like the, the, the fund seems to be like a copy and paste of the, of the previous fund. And there is one very important change though um, and that is that we are um, that we've expanded our partnership by uh, two equal partners um, Ricardo and and Louis so that is the uh, a very important and big change and I think Pavel feel free to to add some some more thoughts on that and obviously we'll also want to give Ricardo and Louis the chance to introduce themselves and talk a bit about their backgrounds go for it Ricardo so my journey in the venture ecosystem has been much shorter than Christoph and Pavel. But um, so I studied math and computer science back in France, and I worked for one of the leading venture firms in France called Alven, which actually had co-invested with Point9 at the time in 2012, I think, in a company called Algolia. Yeah, at the time, the French ecosystem was very small, but I was lucky enough to, to work there and kind of build a passion for, for venture in general. I then did my master's at MIT, and about two weeks before graduating, I met Christoph over Skype, which was the go-to platform still at the time, and joined the team 
at the end of the summer, uh, about four years ago now, um, as an associate. And funnily enough, at the same time, uh, there was another expat uh, lending into the Berlin ecosystem and trying to help another Berlin fund, Berlin-based fund doing uh, investment abroad. And it was Ricardo. And we started meeting quite regularly, understood that we shared the same passion so that we actually ended up sharing a flat, discussing deals almost as much as I was discussing deals with Christophe and Pavel. And, uh, and Ricardo joined us about uh, a year ago right now. Yeah, so Ricardo here, I'm Portuguese from Lisbon. Um, I spent majority or all of my professional career either in London or in Berlin. I started my career in tech at Seedcamp, Europe's leading accelerator program, learning a lot about the earliest stages of investing, but then spent time at a fintech marketplace and at a SaaS company builder in London where I obsessed about go-to-market and acquisition for both models. And I fell in love with the early stage venture job, right? Because I, I love supporting founders with company building, in particular, helping them find the right talent at each stage of the business. So I moved to Berlin, joined uh, another venture fund called Cherry Ventures, where I spent time investing in software and marketplaces, mostly in B2B. And over the years, I, I shared multiple boards with Point9 and got to know the team very well beyond Louis. Uh, and I was constantly impressed and aligned with the way they work with companies. So when the opportunity to join them arose, it was a bit of a no-brainer. And it's a bit like they say, if you can't beat them, join them. And that's that's the story so far. That's awesome. And one thing you guys have decided to do is, is make your partnership a, an equal partnership. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. I think it's uh, it's fairly simple. Uh, uh, the thinking behind that is we, we believe that an equal partnership is kind of something that generates a great sense of ownership among everyone and, and aligns incentives, minimizes politics, promotes teamwork. So it just creates a, a great type of company that also accidentally is, is something that we believe provides the best kind of experience and, and level of service to the entrepreneurs we're backing. So it seems like a very natural choice to create something, you know, small but powerful rather than, you know, more complicated hierarchical and, and maybe less than ideal for, for, for founders to navigate. What do, you, what do you think are the trade-offs for, for firms in terms of when thinking about whether to do that versus not to do that? I think you can, like, you can try to build a, a, a true partnership uh, where you know, everyone shares and contributes equally and a lot of the things happen kind of automatically without explicit processes and stuff and everyone is incentivized to help the other person to the same degree and get involved into every startup and and thus deliver the whole power of the group to the startups. Or you can, you know, create layers of, of, of various titles and ownership levels. At some level, I think the risk is people start feeling like, like employees. Uh, the decision-making is less clear. Uh, the founders don't really or have a harder time understanding who actually is making the decisions in the end, what's the process. With more hierarchies, some, some of the investors might start feeling more like employees than, than actually partners at the fund, which might lead to higher turnover, which again might lead to a worse experience to the founders and, 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 a, and a worse kind of working environment at the fund. I haven't worked at another fund before, so it's more, you know, kind of theory and observation rather than first-hand experience on my end, but just seems very logical to me to, to try to run it that way than, than the other way. 
Totally. So, so you guys are, are focused on on SaaS and marketplaces, and obviously, you know, both of those uh, have evolved in the you know decade plus that you've you've been doing it. Uh, Christoph, why don't you talk about how uh, it, uh, SaaS investing in particular ha- has evolved uh, during your your time investing in it, and how your thesis has evolved as a result? Sure. Um, yeah, the the world of SaaS has indeed changed a lot in the last ten years. Um, if you if we look back to like 2008, 2010, when we when we when we started to invest in in SaaS companies, the combined market cap of the five largest SaaS companies at that time, Salesforce and NetSuite and, and a few others, was about 14 billion dollars. One for today, Salesforce alone is 170 billion dollars um, in market cap, um, and there are like 20 to 25 so-called decacorns, meaning companies valued at 10 billion or more, and in some cases, much more than 10 billion. And then you have another, at least 100, uh, some public, some private SaaS unicorns, meaning companies worth at least a billion dollars. So the the size of the market, if you take the market capitalization as a, as a proxy, has grown approximately 50x in just 12 years, which is, which is pretty crazy if you think about it. What's maybe counterintuitive is, and maybe especially for the people in this, in this call who are used to working with using SaaS applications and didn't really grow up with enterprise software, is that in spite of this unbelievable growth, SaaS still accounts for less than 40% of the enterprise software spend. So more than half of the software spend still goes to on-premise desktop software, uh, bespoke solutions. Um, and, and so based on that, even if, it were, even if SaaS was only about eating on-premise software, which, which it's not, but even if it was only about that, um, the SaaS market could still double. But obviously, it's a lot more than that. Um, it's also about bringing software to people who previously didn't use any software at all. And we, we see several trends that drive that, like consumerization of enterprise software, unbundling, verticalization, and, and other topics, uh, other trends that we'd be happy to uh, dig deeper into. Yeah, let's get deeper into it. What large companies do we think could be disrupted by new SaaS players over the next few years? Actually, just to make sure we speak about the same thing, so we speak about unbundling or unbundling large SaaS companies where the idea is that a startup will go after an opportunity that's already addressed by one of these large SaaS business, but will try to build a better software for a specific niche that might grow and become a very large one down the road, or that might also expand one specific market that's already addressed by this SaaS business but put, potentially expand the market by going after a like, slightly different segment. So if you think about Adobe, Adobe is an interesting example because so Adobe in 2019 was doing about 11 billion in ARR, uh, 6.6 billion uh, from that was coming from the creative cloud division. Uh, and as part of that, you have different software like InDesign, Photoshop, or After Effects. So just after that, we've seen a bunch of companies uh, going after that opportunity lately. So Figma is probably one of the best examples of that, that's trying to build a more collaborative design software for digital products specifically. 
Interestingly, Adobe actually launched a new cloud product called Adobe XD that's going after the same opportunity. But what could argue that actually Figma is addressing this better? Canva is another interesting example in the design software where the landscape where instead of addressing creative professionals, they're addressing communication professionals or anyone with no design skills trying to create nice designs. We've also invested in a company called PlayPlay in Paris that's going very fast now that enables anyone, also like communication professionals more specifically, over creative to create beautiful videos with nice animations without using Adobe Premiere or Adobe After Effects, which was something that was needed before. So, but that's just one part of Adobe, actually. So if you think about Adobe has another division called Document Cloud uh, that was doing about 1.1 billion in AR last year, which includes uh, e-signatures and PDF. So we've invested in a company in London called Juro that's building a better contract software for legal departments uh, specifically. And another of our investment in this space is a company in Australia called Quilla that's bringing PDF to the cloud uh, with a much nicer design, we believe. Another opportunity in the unbundling of, uh, of Adobe or the unbundling in general of like larger SaaS companies is to go after different platforms. So just last year, actually, we invested in a 3D design software that's uh, operating only from the iPad. And our assumption is that the iPad will become more and more powerful and more and more designers and engineers will use the iPad. And it could be that the de facto platforms become safer 3D, which is this uh, business that's building this platform. And more recently, actually, Ricardo led an investment in a company that's building design software in VR, which we think could be actually the next platform. So that's one example. I can give you uh, many more examples of uh, unbundling like last, last company. I think an interesting one is potentially Microsoft. So Microsoft is moving very fast to the cloud, uh, but we've seen try many companies trying to unbundle the office suite specifically. So Airtable is like Fidma in the design space, one of the most obvious examples. It was valued over $2 billion at the last round, and they're going after Excel pretty fast with a nicer design and a more collaborative version. Beautiful AI in the US or pitch in Berlin are going after PowerPoint. And I, I guess the rationale here is like, if you think about PowerPoint, they have like 500 million users. Excel has like 750 million users. So if you assume that a user would be happy to pay $10 per month to access the software, unbundling Excel and PowerPoint are each like five to $10 billion revenue opportunities. So pretty large ones, actually. Maybe the last company I'll mention in this, like, opportunity to unbundle existing SaaS players like Atlassian, which is which I think today I was checking on LinkedIn, they're doing two billion in revenues this year. And in their software suite, so they have Confluence, which is this like widely used internal documentation software. And Notion uh, in the US or apart from the company Gitbook, you know, either building a an easier easier to use uh, platform or Gitbook is going specifically after developers. And we believe that like these are also very large opportunities. And maybe more nascent, like last year, we've seen three new seed stage business going after Jara, like the ticketing software. And the three of them actually got funded by tier one uh, seed and series A investors. So I guess like this is attracting quite a lot of uh, venture uh, money these days. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Louis. Talk, talk about the opportunity for, for vertical SaaS and sort of uh, what, what's exciting and, and how people should think about it. As, as we mentioned, you have... Uh, these behemoths in public markets like Salesforce or Zendesk that are obviously expanding their software suite. But as Christoph mentioned, and software is eating the world, we see 
more and more companies building sort of industry-specific software solutions that cater to an industry's needs. And these companies reduce the scope of the solution, but increase the depth of the solution, ultimately becoming a better fit for businesses in a specific industry. So some examples of mature companies following this approach are Procore in the construction space or Viva in the healthcare space. We've been investing in, in industry-specific software or vertical SaaS, if you call it, for, for many years now. And as Christophe says, way before it was cool. And since our investment in Clio about 10 years ago that sells practice management software to law firms, we've been spending a lot of time on industry-specific SaaS. The general heuristic um, around this space was that in the end markets were too small to produce venture return businesses, but we found that not to be the case in many industries, in instances. Because one, there is less competition, which allows companies to get larger market share. But also we found that owning the payment flow allows companies to unlock interesting additional revenue sources. So what we find really interesting in, in, in vertical SaaS is that these businesses have a lot of different avenues once they own the workflow of the businesses they, they acquire as customers. And, and that means that, for example, they can offer financial services on top of their software offering. Uh, and a good example of this is, is our portfolio company, Jobber, that recently announced a partnership with Stripe Capital to basically provide instant payouts and financing solutions to SMEs using Jobber for their day-to-day -day business, which in the end helps them ease their cash flow needs or even grow their business over time. Another interesting avenue for vertical SaaS is effectively that they can also start building a, a network offering that, that helps their customers find new business. So Doc Planner, a company that, that Pavel invested in back in 2012, is one of the leading software solutions for doctors to manage their clinics and their online presence. It also allows consumers to find doctors and book appointments. We recently led an investment in the, the veterinary space in a company called PetSap in London, where the market was originally quite small, like in the few hundreds of millions, if we were only taking into account sort of the software revenue that they would make initially, but ultimately made it quite hard to believe in a multi-billion dollar outcome implying a very large market share. But when we started digging deeper, we realized that the company could add payment features, financing and insurance propositions, build a marketplace for product supplies, and even a consumer marketplace on top. And each of these were unlocking additional revenue sources and enlarging a market that was now large enough and with a very low level of competition. So, so we're quite excited about these types of opportunities and, and pets up in particular. And when do you guys talk about the enabling technologies that facilitate some of these trends? Yeah, so I guess the, the most obvious one these days, I mean, there are a bunch of ones, like crypto is one, machine learning is potentially another one. So if we, we start by machine learning, I guess the idea, just to make sure we speak about the same thing, is to build more intelligent software by collecting, processing data and using machine learning algorithms, either to build new software or to build like new interfaces. We've been, we've been spending quite a lot of time in, in that, not only because my training is in math, computer science, and machine learning, but also because we believe that this is going to change the software landscape. That being said, we see this more as like a technology enabler, maybe like mobile was 10 years ago, rather than a disruptor per se. So we don't think that like 
most of the large SaaS businesses will be driven will be disrupted by AI first SaaS businesses. But maybe some uh, new companies will emerge with this type of characteristics, or these large SaaS companies will add AI as part of of their offering. I guess what's what's interesting with this is that like you can argue that building an AI first company does require re different skills and different assets. So you need to collect data. You need to build algorithms, you need to refine them. But at the end of the day, it remains a software company which organization needs to scale and that needs to acquire customers. So we do believe that all the experience that Christoph, Pavel, and us as a firm have built, like helping software companies is still quite relevant, but that we need to adapt to these new characteristics linked to like yeah, collecting data and building algorithms and attracting machine learning researchers. The interesting uh, aspect to this as well is that this AI first as businesses have some new characteristics as well. One of them is that it's harder to build, but once you've built it, you have actually these assets that's very hard to reproduce when, uh, when, you, when you get started. The value of the software also typically increases with the amount of data that you collect. So the beauty in theory of AI first SaaS businesses is that it could be one of the first SaaS businesses that are defensible through what's called data network effect, which adds this like, additional interesting layer of, uh, of defensibility. Now, if I like, look back at like, most of the discussions we've had around AI and AI first SaaS businesses, I think our investment thesis has evolved quite a bit. So I, I think the first wave was this like, kind of horizontal soft AI software enabling anyone and any engineers to build machine learning algorithms. I think the issue or the conclusion that we most often got to was that like Google and Amazon had a good chance to commoditize this market by open sourcing their internal tools. I guess Google's machine learning package called TensorFlow is probably one of the best examples of that. So we're rather careful about such opportunities. Like a second opportunity we've seen is like, is like vertically focused uh, or industry specific uh, AI companies. And we think these are great opportunities because you gather and collect this industry specific data that's hard to reproduce. You don't have the threat of the like large uh, software incumbents. And at the same time, you have this interesting potentially winner takes most dynamic that you have because you collect this data specifically. Uh, and believe it or not, actually, we came close to invest in a company called Connectera in the Netherlands that was collecting data from sensors on dairy cows and building a new generation of farm management system, for example, which is an interesting example of like how collecting data can enable to build new experience, in this case, a farm management software, to create a new opportunity. Now, I guess in the past maybe year or two, what we've seen is that like more and more companies and especially corporates are building automation or like machine learning products and they need tools for that, not necessarily tools to build algorithms, but rather tools to process the data, clean the data or monitor their uh, algorithms once they're in production. So we've actually led two investments in the past six months that fit within this category. One uh, is a company uh, building a data quality monitoring platform. You can view this as like Datadog for uh, machine learning pipelines. Uh, and another one is a company based in Armenia, first investment in Armenia actually, that's building a labeling platform for computer vision, where, which we're um, very excited about. Uh, but that's just one new uh, technology enabler. I guess the, the other one we see and we spend quite a lot of time on specifically like with Ricardo are actually APIs. And, uh, and we've done a few investments in the API space over the past 10 years, but it's accelerating uh, these days. Yeah, as a firm, we've been bullish about APIs for 
a long time and we've seen API businesses that have made developers and software companies much more efficient by replacing parts of their product or their infrastructure. And, and this led Point9 to invest in companies like Algolia, which is a surf as, search as a service um, solution or Contentful that provides a, a headless CMS for, for, for companies. But over an interesting trend that, that, we've, that we've been sort of looking at for the past couple of years is, is, is a disruption that's happening in old industries that have been sort of historically the target for these vertical SaaS solutions with general UIs that are now being tackled by these headless disruptors in the form of APIs and selling first to developers. So what we find interesting here is that APIs are now being built to disrupt much older industries than IT. And we spent quite some time on, on, on many companies in this space, a company building a headless trading desk or a headless Robinhood called Al Alpaca, um, Plaid and all the European equivalents in this space are interesting examples in the open banking space. Duffel, uh, a company out of London is going after Amadeus in the airline industry with a headless approach. Impala, in, again in London, is offering an API that aggregates access to property management systems in the hospitality industry. And one of our fastest growing companies, Next Health, based in San Francisco, is building an API to access patients' medical data. And what we find interesting with these new headless products is that beyond selling through developers, they can often aggregate in one unique unified layer a lot of this old software that did not communicate well with each other before. And if you look, as an example, at, at the hotel industry, there are 800 property management systems that don't communicate very well with each other. So if you want to build on top of these systems, you face enormous complexity as you first need to build integrations with a large number of, with a large number of these pieces of software. What these API businesses do is, is that they take care of the burden of this integration work, build functionality on top in a very developer-friendly way, and sell this as an API for other developers to build on top. And by abstracting all this complexity and unifying access to an industry's data through one API, these businesses create a new layer of abundance for new SaaS companies to emerge, what we call SaaS on top of SaaS. And we can take the example of NextHealth again, now that you have the access through patient data via one single API, developers can now build a lot of new applications that requires this data. Very similarly with Plaid, for example, where with one API, people can access financial data and transactions of users in any banks. We think these businesses have the potential to become strong platforms um, and sort of become the AWS for other businesses to build on top of um, for industry-specific access to, to data. So this is another type of technology that we've been tracking and looking into quite deeply over the past couple of years. Totally. That's, uh, that's enough about SaaS a little bit. L let's move to, uh, to marketplaces in your, in your thesis there and, and how it's uh, evolved. Uh, Pavel, perhaps uh, let's start with you. Uh, our uh, thesis and also the, 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 the market of, of internet marketplaces has evolved a lot uh, since, since we started off 10 years ago or so. And 
I think we started by investing in mainly in B2C and C2C marketplaces. You know, examples were like Deliver Hero that I mentioned, uh, but also more recently, for example, Preply, a global tutoring kind of C2C-ish or, or very SMB-ish marketplace out of Kiev in Barcelona. Uh, and that's how it started. And a bit later, around 2015, I think we have noticed or like identified for ourselves the trend of SaaS-enabled marketplaces, uh, which were both B2B and B2B2C. And what they had in common was that they had a significant SaaS component on the supplier side that enabled the suppliers uh, or the sellers to manage their supply, to have a calendar, to make their offering bookable online. That wouldn't have been possible without this SaaS tool. And the examples would be Doc Planner that Ricardo mentioned, Eversports in Europe or ZocDoc and MindBuddy in the US. Yeah? So we would call them SaaS-enabled marketplaces. And uh, what they had in common was that they focused on building tools for the sellers, which resulted in great loyalty on the seller side. And then they were selling to consumers and non-core processes of business buyers, uh, like let's say booking a meeting, meeting room. But on the demand side, the loyalty was the key challenge of these platforms. And uh, some solved it better, some worse, and the better they could solve it, the better the business became in the end. Uh, and uh, we were obviously and still are looking for businesses that have a great answers to these questions. And it's only very recently, the next kind of iteration on the marketplaces, I would say last two, three years, that proper B2B marketplaces emerged. And I'll call them proper because what they do is they focus on some of the core processes of both the buyers and the sellers. Uh, and it's I think the timing is now because this requires kind of fairly sophisticated SaaS infrastructure, tools and knowledge and talent to be available in the market to, to build these platforms. And, and, and this, as, as the guys previously explained, uh, only happening now or has matured a lot only very recently. And, uh, and this is also the, I think, reason why historically there have been no major or not very many big B2B marketplaces out there. You, you could see huge B2C or C2C marketplaces, uh, but on the B2B side, especially in the context of the amazing size of many B2B markets, which are bigger than consumer markets, was always a puzzle. Uh, and, and I think now equipped with, with the kind of SaaS toolset uh, that is available out there for, for people to use and apply to various industries, this puzzle is getting solved. And uh, we've been pretty active in pursuing or looking for B2B marketplaces of that type last two, three years. I think we invested in close to 10 of them. To give you some examples, like Exchange, which is a, a platform for the shipping industry to manage, swap, rent, and trade containers. And containers are the core of the sea freight industry. And so, so we have a platform that really sits at the core of the industry, which provides it with a lot of opportunities to add value as, as they grow and you know really really long product roadmap or metals hub, which is a platform for trading non-listed metals, which is like the essential stuff that, that the steel industry is buying uh, that was happening before, you know, on the phone and fax and all the old school ways. And now the guys from Dusseldorf are building a platform just for that. It has a pretty deep workflow. It like, wouldn't be possible to do it without, without a fairly sophisticated, uh, sophisticated platform. So, what, what all of these have in common is that they build the tools that go into the core processes of, of, of the buyer. And this results almost by definition in great loyalty on both sides of the marketplace. And 
we are super excited about these types of, of, of businesses uh, uh, at the moment and uh, actively looking for more. And we believe that every, virtually every industry out there will, will, be, will be significantly impacted by one or more marketplaces of that type. And when you talk about how they differ from uh, B2C marketplaces? Yeah, sure. Uh, so obviously, this being called marketplaces, there is a lot of similarities to start with. So, you know, they add value through discovery of new buyers and suppliers, and they help create trust for, for counterparties that didn't interact with each other before or create efficiencies of in, in, in how transactions get done. But interestingly, one can argue that the relative importance of, of these aspects can, can vary a lot between B2B and B2C marketplaces. So, for example, because B2B transactions can be much more frequent and bigger than B2C transactions between the same counterparties, uh, there is much more larger opportunity to build value through software automation and you know, making the transactions more efficient and faster rather than for discovery of new counterparties or, or cheaper suppliers like it is for, for B2C. Uh, another difference is that business buyers tend to be more rational buyers, so therefore more price sensitive, uh, which results in, in, in B2B marketplaces having lower take rates than B2C marketplaces, I think, usually, uh, uh, because you know, they, they look at, at every euro and are very, or every dollar more closely than, than, than the average consumer. Uh, and also, I think the buying experience for a business uh, tends to be much more nuanced and kind of deep and more complex than for a consumer, where it's, you know, it's a shopping basket in the end for, for many marketplaces. For B2B marketplaces, it needs to be much more deep and much more industry-specific than that. And here comes the kind of SaaS toolset that, that I mentioned before that is necessary to, to be able to create these buying experiences in the right way. And also they vary in the way how they go to market or which business models they apply. Like many B2B marketplaces are just like consumers. So they start with you know, a, a transaction fee or start for free and scale and they start monetizing when they have, you know, when they're significant in the market. But, but there are marketplaces that actually go to market and, and charge like SaaS businesses. Uh, and this is because they can add significant value already at pretty low liquidity or they have the, a very significant single-player mode, as they call it. So, so you know, like a, a SaaS tool that is part of the marketplace that people are willing to pay for. And, and Exchange that I mentioned is a great example of that. Uh, many SaaS-enabled marketplaces work like this, Stockrunner or, uh, or, uh, or Eversports. And, and I think even Alibaba charges like this. Like, so, so the suppliers pay a monthly or yearly fee to be able to sell on Alibaba rather than, uh, than, than transaction fees frequently. And, and maybe just to, to add to that, I, what I, one thing that I think is, is very interesting is that I think we're starting to see some degree of consumerization for the B2B marketplaces that we've been seeing like for 12 years in enterprise software. Like just as an example, yeah. one of our portfolio companies out of uh, the south of Germany in close to Stuttgart, where, where, I, where I'm actually based right now, um, it's a company called Laser Hub, which has built a marketplace for laser cutting, which is maybe one of the largest industries you've never heard of, or maybe you've heard about it. But I think I, at least I wasn't aware that this is such a gigantic industry. Um, and so what this allows people to do is um, get quotes for custom uh, specific 
metal parts that are then produced using various technologies, including laser cutting. And what Laser Hub is starting to offer the buyers of this marketplace now is it's getting closer and closer to like an, an Amazon style experience, right? Like the, um, and I think that's really something that's pretty unheard of in B2B. And we have other examples in our portfolio, like Cargo One, which, um, I don't know, Louis, you can, you can give some more de details, but it's, it's a company that allows you to find and book cargo quite similar to how consumers are now used to buying uh, flights online. So it's, it seems like there has been a lag between marketplaces and, well, actually in two ways. I think B2B marketplaces have been lag lagging behind relative to consumer marketplaces. Like Pavel mentioned, like the, in the first couple of years of investing in marketplaces, we were seeing more B2C and C2C marketplaces. And also this element of consumerization of B2B seems to be um, lagging behind. But I think um, it's starting to um, catch on. Um, because, I mean, in, in the end, every business person, whether that's a buyer or a seller, whether it's a user of software or a participant in a, in a marketplace, is, is a human being, right? It seems like this has been forgotten in uh, the creation of enterprise software which used to be geared towards the buying department like it or, or finance but not the actual user and i think it's it there are very interesting opportunities for for startups to um, really provide like delightful user experiences to, yeah. to these marketplace participants to, to, to maybe add on that if we have the time i, I think what christoph is saying is essentially you could describe this kind of deep B2B marketplaces as verticalized version of horizontal purchasing platforms, right? And historically, big enterprises, they had purchasing platforms. The smaller companies did it, and they were all very clunky, very enterprisey, and, and very horizontal. And, and now, just like we see in SaaS, we see verticalization of these down to building tools for the buyer uh, and, 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 and operating kind of like transactional marketplaces rather than than software solutions without transactions in them. Totally. And why don't you talk about uh, any other spaces that you're you're interested in, Pablo? I, I, uh, I see that you spent some time in crypto. Yeah, totally. I think I've been fascinated by crypto for a number of years now. Essentially, every crypto is is a global platform with potentially very strong network effects, and that's something that I love about the internet and marketplace logic. is is a business model that was only enabled by the internet. It didn't didn't exist before, uh, and, uh, and and it very much applies to crypto. But unfortunately, crypto has not been super productive for us in terms of uh, of number of investments we made. We made, I think, three crypto-related investments, Bitbond out of Berlin, Chainalysis out of New York, Kaiko out of Paris, uh, maybe because it was more of a kind of a portion of my time rather than full immersion. And I think crypto is so specific that to do a lot there, you need to be fully immersed, which we didn't, but I still believe crypto is a, is a fundamentally new technology that will have a big impact on on the internet and consequently on the whole world of finance mainly, yeah, yeah. For, for starters at least. Totally. And and and, and Christoph, you, you spend some, some time outside SaaS marketplaces occasionally? Why don't you talk about it? 
Yeah, yes, I do. Um, and I guess maybe maybe mostly when I'm on vacation <laughs> or when I'm traveling or when I have some more some more free time to think about a bit outside of the the box that we typically live and work in. So as we've mentioned before, we we feel pretty strongly about our focus on B2B SaaS, B2B marketplaces at the early stages. So we kind of have to accept that we have to say no to lots of interesting opportunities all the time, whether that's interesting companies or raising a later stage growth fund or hiring lots of people. So the, the value of, we, we really value focus, even though it means saying no to many things many times because we think in, in the end, in order to be good at what we're doing, we have to just really focus on that. But nevertheless, once in a while, it happens that one of us gets really passionate about a new technology or a new idea or a new trend or, or startup. And um, that was the case when Pavel started to explore all things crypto in, I think, 2012 or 13, which then led to our investment in Bitbond and, and subsequently some other crypto-related investments. And in, in my case, I'm, I, I personally um, care very much about animal welfare. Um, and so about two years ago, I kind of ventured out of my SaaS box and dug quite deep into the so-called cultured meat space. I don't know how familiar you are with that, but it's basically the idea to grow meat um, using cells and certain nutritions. But in the end, the idea is that you will get a, a product that is comparable and eventually maybe even indistinguishable from meat without having to raise and spend a lot of energy on and eventually slaughter animals. So that's super interesting technology. I, the trigger for, for me to spend time on this was my, uh, my, my, just my personal concerns and concerns about animal cruelty and many other problems with the way meat is currently being produced. Um, and that's a, a topic that I've been thinking about for a long time, but it, it wasn't until about two years ago that I thought, and then I think after some discussion, the team agreed that this could actually be a business. Like, uh, so it, I mean, we, we wouldn't do this if it was just a, a pet project, but if we find opportunities that are outside of our core areas where we see the opportunity to build very, very large companies, and this, this happens to be in an area that one of us is really passionate about and starts to gain more and more knowledge, then I think that's, that's great. And I think in the future, we'll continue to do mostly B2B SaaS and B2B marketplaces, but um, we'll also keep spending time on more exotic areas um, every now and then. And I'm pretty sure this will lead to some very unusual, exciting investments every now and then. And what Christoph doesn't want to say actually here is that historically, this has led to pretty good investments. One of them is, is Revolut, actually, where we had a conviction about mobile banking, but that more recently, we also invested in a flying car business. But I guess we'll speak <laughs> about this one in the, in the next podcast. Totally. Uh, it's, a, it's a perfect place to, to wrap, leave people wanting more. I've uh, had the pleasure of having the, the Point 0.9 team on the podcast. Uh, guys, thank you so much for 
for taking the time to chat. If, if, if you're building something in SaaS marketplaces, we, we highly recommend, or something else that's super interesting. Highly <laughs> recommend talking to the Point9 team. I'll put your Twitter and, and emails in the show notes so people can, can reach out. Uh, guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great. Thanks episode. a lot, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Thank you very much, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.